Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast, a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Each episode is taken from a chapel message given here at Emmaus. For more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Good morning. It's wonderful to see all of you. What a privilege it is to address you this morning, even with a wonderful and tricky passage like James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Um, It wasn't that long ago that I had the opportunity not literally, but figuratively, I would say, where, where Mr. Elliot's positioned. I would sit right there when I was a student, and I would sit on the end row, so I'd be sitting next to Mr. Elliot. And that was an important time for me many years ago in terms of trying to grapple with and understand the Word of God and respond to the Word of God. I was a relatively young believer at the time. I was 22, didn't know a lot about the Bible or know a lot about beyond the Lord Jesus in terms of what he had did for me, but lo and behold, the Lord had a wonderful journey for me that uh, I would love to rejoice over with you over lunch if you're available. Many, many truths that the Lord spoke to me in this room uh, right over there as I grappled with it. And I realize too, as you are here as a student, it's not always easy to hear the word of God and grapple with it as you're faced with your own life and rejoicing in the Lord, but also mindful of how we need to respond to the Lord. And so with that heart or that spirit, I want to encourage us this morning, all of us, uh, no matter if we're a student or faculty or a speaker this morning, that we would take the word of God to heart and try the best that we can possibly to respond to the Lord. As we already said this morning that uh, we're continuing to uh, address a series in being equipped for good works. And as been incumbent upon me as I prepare this message for you and impressed upon me that the good work that is probably one of the most important formative ones that's difficult to master is the good work that we're equipped with to love. And James, especially chapter 2, really hits home in a practical way, which I very much love the pragmatic side of James and how he applies the theology of the Lord Jesus and what it means to be saved. So with that note, let's pray one more time and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your care for us and your word. Father, I pray for the hearts in this room, including my heart, that my heart would be moved, that I'd have the courage to respond to you, that I'd have the compassion to respond in love to others around me, believers and unbelievers alike, that I might glorify you through my actions and through my words and even my thoughts. Help us as we open up James this morning. Father, thank you for this student body and those who are here and the work that you're doing in their life, that they've been equipped for every good work, especially the good work of love through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us explore that responsibly this morning in a way that's edifying and encouraging to the saints and inspiring to us all. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so James chapter 2, verses 14 and 26 One of the things I want to ask you, and I'll return to this question throughout the message and by the end of the message, is I'd like you to reflect on the following, and you have to finish the statement. I can't finish it for you. I don't or I can't love because you fill in the blank. We'll talk about what that might look like in a little bit. But I don't or can't love because dot, dot, dot. In James chapter 2, He defines pure religion and true worship before God as love. In fact, he calls it the royal law. 
of love. True worship to God aligns our thinking and actions with his character and nature in ways that worldly thinking cannot. I know that sounds kind of obvious, but think about that for a minute. The overarching overarching concern of James's letter is that being like Christ demonstrates that we have been truly changed by Christ. By responding to God in true faith through right belief that produces right action. And that's kind of the premise of James's letter as a whole. Pure religion before God is actively loving others, he's going to argue. By challenging greed specifically, anger, ungodly speech, and believe it or not, even prejudiced attitudes and actions towards others. They were struggling to love one another by, because of materialism and judgmentalism and perhaps some even responding in anger because of the mistreatment of those who were acting unloving towards them. So maybe it goes both ways in the text. To love God is to obey his laws and will ultimately lead to loving others. To treat another with prejudice or oppression is a violation of God's law and is sin, according to James. We simply can't love others if we're oppressing or devaluing them because of, their, because of their resources or lack of them or their social status. That's one of the primary issues that James addresses in the letter to his audience. Just like we can't love others if we're committing adultery or murder or lying against one another. It just simply is not loving by definition. James uses the term brothers and sisters 10 plus times in chapters 1 through 3. I think this is significant for the following reason. This phrase could mean a person by biological relation, okay, a national people group, a fellow human, a fellow believer, or people who are united by the bond of affection or what they value. James clearly has this last one in mind. The last two, I should say. Ephesians 4, 2 through 6 says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. Our affections in Christ is what binds us together, amen? And it should motivate us to love one another above all people. It should be easiest to love one another because of who we are in Christ, but oftentimes it is difficult for all of us, including myself. We're ultimately connected through the person and work of Jesus, and the character and nature of God is in us because of what Jesus has done to us. It's really important in the doctrine being taught in the the book of James. This spiritual connection is not through race or age or gender or education or social status or job or even nationality. However, I would say, that these things do provide meaningful connections that enhance our experience through Jesus Christ. We're united as we share in the affections of Christ. James sees them as family. Consider how uh, Jesus redefines family in Matthew 12, verses 47 to 50. It says, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. To the one who has said this, Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is a profound statement that offends the cultural norms of Jesus' time, for sure, in terms of family identity and loyalty. Jesus' point here is that those who follow him and desire the kingdom of God in terms of valuing it 
is what he values and through faith are transformed into family. We're by virtue children of God, family of God, because of what Jesus has done and he's transforming or changing us. And it even changes our uh, earthly relationships as well, as Jesus points out in this text. Paul speaks of the body of Christ to the Galatians as the household of faith, a very affectionate term. Paul often uses affectionate terms, like my son Timothy, or my brother, or my faithful servant. Very affectionate, loving terms he uses that are intimate in nature. James exhorts them in this context as family. For James, their behavior is illogical and dumbfounding as believers. How would you treat your family if a family member were hurting and in need, how would you respond? How would I respond? Or what's the appropriate logical response? Would we ever invite our brother to dinner and have him sit on the floor because of his income or clothes? It's illogical to think this way and even more profound and illogical to behave that way about one another, especially in the text. Yes, this is what, yet, yet this is what they were doing to family in their context, especially in chapter 2. James further redefine, or excuse me, defines what true religion is in worship through loving one another by taking on the relationship of faith and works. This is a little bit tricky, so pray for me. I want to make sure I get this clear and accurate. It's oftentimes misunderstood of what the text is saying, and we use it in a way that's harmful to the church and harmful to the reputation and application of the gospel. But here, here it goes. Here's what he says. It's often, historically, this is a great confusion over the relationship between faith, or there is great relation, excuse me, let me start over. Historically, there's a great confusion over the relationship between faith and works. In chapter 2, James references their faith. Do they believe the right thing if they're thinking and behaving the wrong way? This is the great mystery of the Christian life in our flesh. If we're believing the right thing and we're not acting the right way, is there a disconnect or a miss in terms of our Christian life. And James will argue, indefinitely there is. And we all struggle with it on a daily basis. In chapter 2, James references their faith in terms of what I just said. More importantly, he defines saving faith in chapter 2, verse 1. And he says, my brothers and sisters, do not show prejudice if you possess faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He ties the belief to the action. So let's explore that a little bit more. In chapter 2, verses 14, he says, what, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can this kind of faith save him? Now, I am not about to make projections and assume that you're saved or not in this room. I hope that you are. But ultimately, that's up to God and the parameters that he's defined through us in faith in Jesus Christ and a transformation through the baptism of his spirit in which we're reborn and transformed to be something different. Amen? To be something different than that, than that which we were. And we work through that reality in terms of our struggle and our faith. I think faith is commonly misunderstood in Hebrews chapter 11 as it says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see, verse 1 and then verse 6. Now without faith it is impossible to please him. For the one who approaches God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Here the result of faith is being described in, in Hebrews chapter 11. Hence, hence faith brings assurance and conviction in the things that we look forward to. 
but do not yet see, and it pleases God, it says. Our faith is not hoping in the hope. Listen to this carefully, please. Our faith is hoping in the God who has secured and is our future. So faith is believing God. Our faith is believing God. The word for faith simply means to entrust or commit to here in the text. It occurs 13 times in chapters 1 through 2. The implication of faith is that salvation and sanctification comes through a genuine acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to a surrendered allegiance or commitment to him, to a person. We surrender to God by imitating his thinking and behavior. And yes, faith is necessary for salvation. We know that. That inevitably leads to transformation, exercise in a spirit-filled life as we approach God by a humble surrender through belief and obedience. So when we talk about being equipped for good works, we're transformed so that we can do good works. We think differently, we feel differently, and we begin to act differently because of the supernatural work of God. That's true. That's important. But we also, in our new creation, we choose to and we obey God. We prioritize God in our lives and we commit to obeying him and being holy and pure people, not just in who we are and our standing with God because of Christ, but in our standing and behavior before God and who we are as new people. We have a job to do. We have a privilege to serve God and Jesus has set us free to be able to serve God. Amen? We don't have to fear God anymore. Death has no sting. Death has no rain. We don't have to fear punishment from a holy God because Jesus has taken care of it to free us to obey. And that's a concept that's oftentimes overlooked in the Christian life. In modern Christianity, I get concerned, is that we just feel and we just respond to God in emotion, but there's no change. What James is teaching here is that there has to be change. There should be change. It's a natural outcropping of what God has already done in us and is working out in us, and we respond to him in obedience. And it's hard, isn't it? It's difficult, isn't it? It's scary, isn't it? It's full of fear and insecurity, isn't it? It's full of temptation, isn't it? The meaning of works here can be defined in the context as maybe a business or employment, Work with which one, one does, an enterprise, a product or thing accomplished by hand, art, industry, or mind. Work as an act, deed, or thing working. It's works. It's doing something in the name of God to honor him and response to him in terms of what's appropriate for the logic of our salvation. I think that's what James is arguing. The word works here occurs about 13 times as well. It's pretty important to James. James emphatically states that faith without works is dead. It's lifeless. Faith without change that leads to actions of thinking and behavior is lifeless. In fact, if we don't have faith that way, I'm not sure. I think that he's, what he's saying is that he's not sure if it's really true faith at all. If there's not response, because we're filled with the Spirit of God and designed to be something different. The ancient Hebrew view of understanding or to hear Related to the commandment to love God in Deuteronomy 6.4, if you're familiar with that, means to listen with intent to obey. Therefore, James points out, point, excuse me, therefore James's point about faith and works is profound here. 
to truly believe is not merely intellectual acknowledgement, but is expressed through change of character and action because of the supernatural work of God. It's not us trying harder. It's allowing God to work through us because of how wonderfully he's recreated us in Christ. That's the hard thing to harness in the Christian life. But this is James's message. It's spiritual common sense, as I've said, between salvation and sanctification. He's not teaching or questioning that one is justified before God in their sin by doing good things. This is an unnatural way to read the text. And in fact, that's a very unnatural way to read the biblical narrative as a whole. Clearly, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and many other passages oppose this thinking. Rather, he is saying that since you believe that you are saved by Christ, it doesn't make sense that you wouldn't be like him because that's what our salvation is. We are made like Christ. If God is the father of lights and we are children of light, as he would say earlier in the text, then shouldn't we, well, have light? That's part of the question for me this morning in my own life. James chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says, So put away all filth and evil excess and humbly be welcome the message implanted within you, which is able to save your souls. But be sure to live out the message and do not merely listen to it and so deceive yourselves. He covers it right there. The saved by grace, it, the message is capable of saving our souls. Now listen to it and live it out. James understands what salvation is for sure. Let's, let's be careful for all of us and even Christendom to twist his words to say something that he doesn't say. He's holding in balance these wonderful, two wonderful truths about faith and works working together to respond to God, the living God, appropriately. What a wonderful message for us this morning at Emmaus Bible College. What I love about this school and why I continue to teach here and why I wanted to come here and why I wanted to continue to interact with people for years, why I wanted to come back and teach here and be a part of your lives is that reality of saying, we're going to teach the word of God for transformation, not just to know it, not just to have good pithy answers. I love that heart of James, the message of Jesus implanted in us by faith saves. Now live out the message through transformation. So what is practical transformation? I've been thinking about this for this text. It's, it's a peculiar text in terms of our topic. So what does it look like to live it out? I think James very much has some wonderful examples. Being equipped for good works. 2.15 simply puts it, simply puts it, if you see a need, particularly a Christian in the text, acknowledge it and simply say sorry and God loves you, it's problematic. There has to be more. There has to be a more extended response, according to James. God cares for the needs of his people through the goodness of his character and uses us to express it. Let me say that part again. This is really important for us, for all of us seeking the Lord. God cares for the needs of his people through the goodness of his character, and he uses us to express it. Amen? That's our design. That's our intention. That's why God didn't immediately rapture me and put me into heaven after I profess Christ. There's a job that we have to do, and it is hard. It's a grind-out, day-to-day, die-to-self, hard job. But we got to do it. We got to encourage each other to do it. His audience has means to be instruments of his goodness, but their sinful attitudes and actions were preventing them from doing so. 
Now, I would like to pause just for a quick second as you're contemplating these truths. How has God positioned us, you, me, into being instruments of his goodness, doing those good works that James might call it? How has God positioned us, and how are we missing it? What's in the way of our lives or distractions or our own sin or our own bitterness or brokenness or our own doubt that is preventing us from extending God's care that he wants desperately to show through us? That's a good exercise for all of us. To bolster this, he says demons acknowledge God. It's very interesting. He says demons acknowledge God as the supreme being and mighty one, but yet they do not truly produce fruit. Why does James bring this peculiar point up? I think what he's saying is that some of the believers or so-called believers in the audience were acting more like the demons than they were acting like God. That they were producing fruit that was biased and full of bitterness and full of um, discrimination and full of unkindness. That they acknowledged God, that they professed belief in God, but they didn't respond in being like God. That's interesting to me because the demons respond to God in uh, possibly a respect or a level of respect for God. They acknowledge him. They believe. But they don't truly, they are not truly transformed. They don't produce good fruit. find it very interesting that he draws that parallel in terms of uh, setting up what he's about to encourage them with in terms of the good examples now. Don't be like the demons who believe and do nothing, and in fact their fruit is ungodly. Be like these two other people, and when you read the text as we read this morning, we have these two wonderful uh, giants of faith in Abraham and Rahab. Very important in the text, good examples for us. Let's explore that in a minute, uh, a little bit. So James provides difficult and practical examples that they should act on and expects them to respond in Christ's likeness. This demonstrates true change in response to God through right belief that produces right action. In contrast to the demons, he brings up, as I said, uh, excuse me, he brings up Rahab and Abraham. Two interesting, uh, wonderful examples. They're evidence of transformational faith. That's why he gives them. Old Testament figures found in Israel's historical identity. So let's explore that a little bit. James's audience would respect Abraham as a patriarch of the Jewish nation. Um, as, I, I was about, as I was, excuse me, as I would imagine that many of us are aware of Abraham. I was one of the students in the corner over there when I heard about Abraham in Old Testament survey. I had no idea who he was. And I was limited in being inspired in understanding the very heart of God as he expresses his heart through the hall of fame of faith or the examples that we have recorded in the text. And I was missing Part of that response to God and the depth and the, the reality and the richness of it and being like Abraham. So what was Abraham like? Let's talk about that for a minute. We're going to contrast it to Rahab as well. And there's an interesting contrast. I find it very fascinating, very brilliant. Abraham's faith is the theological standard Paul uses to teach the relationship between faith and works. If you go to Galatians uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 14, he outlines that. That Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And those who have the same kind of faith are Abraham's children. Really important text in the New Testament as far as defining the gospel. It's a wonderful study to do. When we look at uh, faith and, uh, excuse me, Galatians and then Abraham and the connection, 
that the promise to the nations, Abraham believed God through his actions. And we have a very practical example that would be really hard if you're a dad or, or a mom in this room, or you can imagine that doesn't take long is that God asked him to sacrifice Isaac. And we know that story if we've been studying the Old Testament. And it was a response to God in believing and and expressing that belief through responding to God in a work or a good work. Abraham genuinely believed God and it was counted as righteousness, according to Paul. His right belief produced right actions. Those who believe like Abraham, the believer, are the sons of Abraham who follow his example, benefiting accordingly. They're justified before God. They're made right before God. They too will become righteous through faith in God's promises. Paul makes an important distinction on works of the law, and those who believe like Abraham will end up like Abraham. You go back to that text in Galatians. James chapter 3, verse 18 says, Show me your faith without works, and I will show you your faith by my works. Very important uh, statement made in the book of James in terms of the difficult truth that he's, he's uh, revealing to us, to his audience. I will show you my faith by my works. And that's what God expects and what he, he treasures in us. Good works are evidenced through genuine saving faith. They thought, excuse me, um, James's audience thought that they were righteous through a kind of faith that showed little actual love or charity. And he brings out some of those examples that we've talked about. This isn't Abraham's faith. And if it's not Abraham's faith, it's very problematic for that audience. And James is helping them wake up to the fact that they're not responding to God and they better take inventory in terms of what their faith is and how they understand the gospel in the first place. Because they might be in trouble. So you can work through that kind of reality too. God tested that faith in, in Abraham by asking him to offer up Isaac. Abraham responded because he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead in accordance to he, the, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. This is faith in action. Very profound statement, by the way, made in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 because the author of Hebrews says that Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. Have you ever thought about that? This man, Abraham, and what that meant for him and the implication of that, that he was actually willing to kill his son? We would think that would be weird or grotesque or perverted in our generation, and rightfully so. But we have this extreme example that I think James brings out, brings out in the text and says, you need to be like this. You need to be extreme like this in obeying God. Not for the sake of looking good or feeling like God's going to love you more, but because that is the re- appropriate response of Jesus in you and what he's done for you and me. Amen? And we struggle through obedience. I, I get that. Abraham struggled through obedience, but I love the example that's given. Additionally, Rahab marks a stark contrast. I love what James does here. Follow along with me, please. She was a prostitute in the ancient Palestinian city of Jericho, had no historical significance as far as the Jews were concerned, no uh, high status, no uh, specific promises given to her. It was just an insignificant woman, Gentile woman, who did an extraordinary act of faith. And so if you haven't read the text, you can go back to Joshua chapters 2 through 6, in which Israel conquered, with a, conquered Jericho without a single soldier. They simply believe God and express their belief through genuine faith by marching around the city blowing horns. 
They believed in God's promises and acted like they were true. Do you see a theme here? Rahab had faith in God's mercy amidst the impending destruction of Jericho. She heard and welcomed the greatness of God and believed and acted by hiding Israel's spies with great personal risk. Again, I can't help to think that Rahab was more like the people that were being mistreated in the text of James than they were that she was more like the, the rich people that were mistreating the other believers. What a stark contrast. What a very powerful message for James to say, here's Abraham, oh, that's easy, I can honor that. And here's Rahab, I don't know. You see the contrast there. Both are credited for the same reality and act of faith, and it's pleasing to God. Their faith caused them to respond to God. Respond in good works, equipped for good works, responding in love to those around them and to God. So let's end with Hebrews chapter 11. I have a couple minutes left. The list of examples of true faith in Hebrews 11 are proven through response and actions towards God, and this is fitting. I want to draw your attention to a couple of verses in Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. These, these all people, these uh, examples of faith, these hall of famers, they all died in faith without receiving the things promised, it says. But they saw them in the distance and welcomed them and acknowledged that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For those who speak in such a way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And in fact, if they had been thinking of the land that they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they aspire to a better land, a better way, a better citizenship, a better kingdom, to be with the Savior, who's a better priest, a better sacrifice. Amen? But as it is, verse 16, they aspire to a better land. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. And like Abraham, all these people are called God's friends and they believed. So I want to end with this one quick example in my life. Years ago when I was a youth pastor in Seattle, I moved into our, my family into our home. And we met our neighbors and across the street was a man named Michael. And I was in my mid-20s at the time and he was in his uh, lower 20s. And Michael was a recovering addict from hard drugs. He also had MS. He also had extreme anxiety. He was taking antidepressants. He was taking medical marijuana. His teeth were all messed up and dark and rotting because of the drugs that he had um, consumed throughout his life. And I began to talk to Michael and befriend him and talk to him inevitably about my faith. I'd stumble through that as a young man, talk to him about my faith. And then I was reluctant to invite him to church because I wasn't sure if him coming to church would be good for my reputation as a brand new young youth pastor. And I began to talk to Michael, and I began to share my faith with him, and I began to talk to him about the Bible, and then I began to get the courage to invite him to church because of texts like this. And I wanted to respond to God in my, my own shame of worrying about that in the first place. So I invited him to church, and he said, I'm not sure I want to come to church, understandably so. A few months went by, and I was outside in front working on my lawn, and I heard out in the distance this voice that's, that sounded like this. Hey, I'm going to church. Just like that. And I was like, huh, what? What's going on? Who is that? I'm not sure that's what God's voice would sound like if he audibly spoke to me. Hey, I'm going to church. And I realized 
after a little while, it was Michael, and he was speaking through his basement screen, right, of his, of his, of his, uh, his room. And I began to talk more to Michael about church and about life and pray with him. And it was a wonderful relationship by the time I got to leave uh, that place. I was there for about five years. I lived in that house for about five years and then moved and came here. And so I have no idea what Michael's doing. I pray that he's doing well. Let's pray. We love you, Father. We thank you. Thank you for your care for us. Help us to love others well, not just because it makes us feel better, but because it's pleasing to you and we want to respond to you in love. Thank you for saving us because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that Jesus has freed us to obey. He's freed us to do good works. He's freed us to love. Help us answer the question if, that I can't or I don't love because of fear, because of my pride, because of arrogance, because of insecurity, because of lack of forgiveness. Whatever it might be, help us to love others. We love you and we thank you. Be with these individuals. Walk with us today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.